Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. There's only one rule, no sound bites. We record each episode before a live audience at Longitude, Oakland, California's premier tiki bar. I'm your host, Annalene Newitz. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor. My co-host is Sarus Farivar, Ars Technica's senior business editor. In this episode, we talk to journalist and author Sarah Jiang about online harassment. Sarah Jiang is the author of The Internet of Garbage, a book about how internet companies can learn to fight online harassment the same way they learn to fight spam. I wanted to just start by asking you, you've written a lot about online harassment and trolling and what do you think a good working definition is of online harassment? It seems like there's just so many ways of looking at it. So if you, and we're going to talk about spam in a bit, right? Like how do you define spam, right? You're going to call it an unwanted mailing, but that could be anything. And if you say harassment is an unwanted contact, like that could be anything as well. Like those are both overbroad definitions. Um, I think we both have a general sense of what spam is, and we have a general sense of what harassment is. And it's, um, but at the same time, like it's very difficult to form definitions around it. I think that for a lot of people, their work focuses around harassment that's uh, focused on um, people for like you go after people for like their race, their gender, their sexuality. Um, it, it, it's on like sort of these attacks on people that are meant to sort of emotionally rattle them or like disrupt what they're doing or get them to shut up or silence them. But you know, it could also encompass things like stalking. Sometimes people might not even know that they're harassing the other person, right? Uh, which is, I actually think that's a bit rare. I think most of the time people know exactly what they're doing. But like, you know, you could, like someone could be sending someone like a bajillion messages every day and like not realize that this is like very much unwanted and might be putting someone in fear and so on and so forth. So basically, I don't know. <laughs> Are there any helpful legal definitions of harassment? Yeah, the answer is no. <laughs> I think a common adage that people have when dealing with kind of online harassment and unwanted attention is don't feed the trolls and like use your block button as much as possible. Is that an effective strategy? It's, it's a little tricky. So one of the things when you're being harassed is it, it's a lot worse if you show that you're emotionally affected by it. Um, and so there, there's this sort of dual thing going on where if you tell someone don't feed the trolls, you're being an asshole. Like that's, that's not helpful. Like you're basically blaming the person for what's happening. But at the same time, as someone who experiences online harassment, I regularly seek not to feed the trolls. Um, and so there is that, but like, you know, this, this sort of thing exists on this wide continuum. Are you really going to say, for instance, to Zoe Quinn, don't feed the trolls? Things are already sort of out of the basket, and no matter what she says or does for maybe like years, people are going to be going after her. And when it comes down to it, like the reason why they're coming after her is because she exists and because she's out there in public, because she's talking, because she's doing things, because she's making video games. By telling her, don't feed the trolls, what you're saying is, stop existing, stop making video games, stop being a public person, stop speaking. 
that's just a nasty thing to say. One of the things that I think is really interesting about um, Internet of Garbage, your book, is that you don't just describe harassment, but you actually talk about solutions. You talk about technical solutions that companies can implement or communities can implement. The first sort of error that people make is like, oh, let's solve harassment. There's no such thing as solving harassment. It's about providing solutions, but that, that, can, that just means making it a little better, a little better, a little better, a little better. Um, you can't just boil the ocean. Like, you have to like, take it one step at a time, try to make it a little better. Um, and I mean, that's the case with like, a lot of stuff, right? Like with, for instance, personal security, you're not gonna solve hacking forever. Like that's, there is no such thing. Unless you just, everyone throws away their computers and then we'll be done. And actually that would solve online harassment too. So maybe we should think about it. So when I'm going through these things, they're all gonna sound like stupid little dinky things. But that's, you know, what solving harassment looks like is piling on the stupid little dinky things one at a time until, you know, people's lives actually get better. So one thing that I think has been really interesting, um, and we've maybe hit against sort of the limitations of this, but like immediately after Gamergate, we started seeing sort of innovations in blocking technology. And it was very bizarre because a lot of it was coming out of people who didn't work with Twitter. I think sort of my favorite piece of blocking technology actually came from someone who used to work at Twitter and then he like coded this thing called Block Together in his off time that lets you sort of like share your block list with people. You could basically subscribe to someone's block list and you would automatically block everyone that this other person blocked. Which was like, that seems straightforward, right? Like it seems like why didn't Twitter just have this there in the first place? which is a very good question and something that you should be asking Twitter. And then someone came up with a thing that's still pretty controversial called the GG autoblocker. Um, and what that does is like when Gamergate was sort of in full swing, and this was in 2014, in the fall of 2014, she realized, hey, there are these five people who are basically the ringleaders and are egging everything on. And so she was like, all right, if you follow, I believe it's like two out of the five, you're probably going to be a gamer gator. You're probably like, no one wants to see this, like your tweets if, they're, if you're being harassed. So let me just auto-generate a list of these Twitter accounts and automatically block them. This is obviously super blunt, right? Like this is obviously overbroad. You're gonna catch all kinds of, you're gonna catch like corporate accounts, right? Because there's all kinds of like random corporate accounts that just follow all kinds of people. Like, you know, if you're following like 10,000 Twitter accounts, you're not gonna notice that you're following some horrible human beings who harass people, right? It's not a smart solution. It's a blunt solution, but it worked. A lot of people like reported, oh, things are quiet now. I don't feel like I'm being attacked all the time. And I can talk to my friends again, and this is making Twitter a much better experience for me. These are obviously very limited solutions, like super limited, and what I think is particularly interesting in the Twitter context is that on and off button essentially, right? Block or not block. And for the longest time in our sort of dealings with each other on the internet as, as we form these communities, we haven't had such a limited way to deal with each other. Like usually we have like a moderator, we have someone who's like sorting out discussions or like banning people from the group or like saying, hey guys, you need to be more civil to each other or like removing certain posts, right? And to an extent, Twitter does do that in that they have a trust and safety team and you report abuse and so forth. But that is like 
on the scale that it exists is actually ridiculous. Like it's not at all how things used to be, right? Like when you have like forums and mailing lists and comment threads, the scale cannot be compared. And on top of that, Twitter sort of puts itself out there as like a neutral platform. It's not like a mailing list where people gather to discuss Linux, right? It, Twitter is supposed to be everything. And so it's like there's no way to have context to like know the people that you're moderating and so on and so forth. And so you have this block button that's distributed out to everyone to like try and mitigate how ridiculous the situation is. And it's so like toggle on, toggle off. Um, and it's very hard to do anything with that. And so like I think that might be my biggest complaint with Twitter is that it doesn't give people tools to moderate their own Twitter experiences. I think the other interesting thing that came around during this period was actually what League of Legends was doing with its users. So for a while, they had this system where they would basically gather these impromptu juries of other gamers and have them decide whether or not the behavior of the person who had been reported was acceptable. And then it, their decision would also get like confirmed by a member of staff, right? And it turned out in 80% of the decisions, um, staff was like, yeah, no, this is the jury is correct on this. People responded really well to the system. They were like, oh yeah, I didn't realize that I was being a jerk online. And maybe that's true. Maybe they're just lying. Maybe they knew perfectly and they're just like, oh, sorry. Yeah, they like their behavior improved. And I'm not saying that it's like a utopia now, but things got actually better. And I think that's like a really interesting model. But I think in the case of Periscope, they've adopted a jury system as well, where you can report abuse. And then like, if enough people report abuse, like you have sort of this jury to decide whether or not it is abuse. And this is in response to a few incidents. There was an incident where um, a girl live streamed her friend's rape on Periscope. They're trying to stop stuff like that. There wasn't really a system in place for that, and like it sort of takes like a tragic failure for people to realize that they should have reporting systems in place. These are sort of two innovations, I think, where you have this idea of sharing the labor, right? Of mass blocking, right? Of sharing the labor of moderation. And then there's sort of this idea of almost forming your own um, internal democracy to weigh in on each other's behavior. Are there instances of cases coming from the legal side where harassment has been handled exceptionally well or exceptionally poorly with respect to online harassment? I mean, people go to prison, and I think that's generally a poor way of handling it. There's a few cases in the UK where people have gone to prison, literally to prison for tweets. It's stuff like, oh, you deserve to get raped or whatever, which like is, is terrible, and I think you should probably get banned for Twitter from Twitter for saying something like that, but I also don't think you should spend time in prison for it. It was a stranger. It was a strange person tweeting this at someone as part of this giant pile-on, and I think that in general in America, we think it would be really weird if you went to prison for something like that. There's also a case in Texas where a League of Legends player, this kid actually, wrote on Facebook, he was like really mad about losing a game in League of Legends and he was like, I'm going to go shoot up a school, lol. And so he went to jail. Like some person, random person reported him, like his Facebook comment, and he like ended up getting prosecuted for it. Yeah, I like just don't think these are good ideas. There is one case in the Supreme Court that went up to the Supreme Court called Elonis, and it's a really weird one where this 
basically jerk ex-husband started freaking everyone out because he would post these weird diatribes on Facebook. So he was basically ripping off Eminem, right? Like, you know, Eminem's horrible, like domestic abuse songs. He was going through this contentious divorce. First, he made like creepy comments to his coworkers, to his boss. I don't know if you guys know this whitest kids you know sketch. Hi, I'm Trevor Moore. Did you know that it's illegal to say I want to kill the president of the United States of America? It's illegal, but not illegal to say with a mortar launcher, because that's its own sentence. He writes the sketch down verbatim, but changes out the president for my wife. And then the method in which they're supposed to, they say they're going to kill the president, he swaps it out for a rather detailed description of how he's going to approach like the backside of her house and like shoot her. Like this guy like really sucks. Anyways. The point at which law enforcement get, like, they decide to actually go after him, of course, is the FBI show up to his house. They're like, oh, hey, can we talk to you about your Facebook posts? And then he goes, no, and, like, basically shuts the door on them. And then he immediately, like, as soon as, like, he shuts the door on them, he runs back to his computer and writes a Facebook, another rap about how he's going to kill the FBI agents. <laughs> and that's the point at which uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office decides to bring charges against him. That ends up going to the Supreme Court. They messed up and they didn't apply intent in the case, right? Or, like, you have to intend on, in some way to have threatened. And so it, it ends up going, going back for a new trial. But it's cases like this where, like, it only ends up... It's always something ridiculous, right? Like for Alonis, I think is is not really a case about online harassment. Like it, it is really a, a case about like the intent requirement. I don't think it really affects online harassment cases very much. I think that like it's only really remarkable in that it reminds us that online harassment isn't about anonymous trolls, like a bunch of anonymous trolls attacking a woman. Like, you know, it's ex-partners, it's um, stalkers, it's, sometimes it's just like someone you know. Like, you know where they live, you know their name, you know their face. So, to go back to the question of how we could use technology or use features of various applications to stop harassment, you've thought a lot about how spam, the battle against spam, which I don't know if people remember the battle against spam, but we won. And the way we did it was through a lot of automation. So do you think that that's, that that's applicable to abuse? Oh, totally. It, it is. And it, it's particularly applicable because like there are serious First Amendment concerns with anti-spam. Like we don't, we never think about this, right? Like it's, we're just like, oh, Gmail, sometimes stuff goes to spam and that's annoying, but, but you know, my email is usable now. This is great. Like, right. Like it's, it's, we just don't really think about it anymore, but there's like a huge first amendment problem with, with anti-spam. And just because it's automated doesn't mean it's, it's not dangerous censorship. And actually there's like, you know, anti-spam measures will, for instance, fuck up use of Tor. Like, it's, it's really difficult for people to use Tor exactly because of anti-spam measures. Um, it's very difficult to maintain anonymity on the internet because of anti-spam measures, for good reason, because spammers are tr constantly trying to create accounts and, and, like, you have to try and stop them somehow by, like, for instance, requiring them to put in their phone number. But by requiring someone to put in their phone number, it means in order to stay anonymous, you need to get a burner phone. But in order to get a burner phone, a lot of the time you have to show ID and so on and so forth. So it becomes, it's like, it's hard out there for a whistleblower, right? 
and it's because of spam. But a lot of those those anti-spam measures, like for instance, like preventing people from making multiple serial new accounts, that's pretty relevant for abuse, right? I mean, like the fir- like the speech concerns are still there. Like I'm not going to dismiss the speech concerns. It's just that we should be thinking about this the way we think about spam. There's this thing, especially for people who get like, oh, like, well, we can't institute this anti-abuse measure because it's it'll stifle free speech. It's like, well, we already do it for spam. Like, where were you when they did it for spam? Like, the reason why you're getting all upset right now is because you don't believe abuse is real or because you want to abuse people. If you're concerned about this, you should be concerned about it for spam as well. And at the same time, we should also just be like, well, all of these things are already in place. We're rolling forward. Um, There are technical solutions. Some of the technical solutions are bad and we should just be debating them. It doesn't mean we can't do anything. It doesn't mean that we're, we're stuck and that there is no real solution because all the solutions are imperfect. Also, you've written about um, Tay, the Microsoft bot, who is an interesting example in the history of, of online abuse. And one of the things that is so interesting about it is that it reflects how quickly people can kind of change the terms of debate with automation. So can you tell us a little bit about um, how they could have stopped that from happening? I love this article because it's just me quoting people one after another. And and it's just kind of delightful because it's all people who make bots on Twitter and they're just like, why did Microsoft do this? Why are they so bad at making Twitter bots? Because they've all been grappling with this and they're just like, yeah, like my bots sometimes are racist and I just don't like that. And this is all, these are all the things that I did to prevent that from happening. If you follow the story, like Microsoft like created like a teen girl bot on Twitter and then you could talk to her and she was like a teen and it was like, is she was learning and it, it was supposed to be this like cool, fun, magical experience. And it was for about five seconds and then 4chan found out about it. And then immediately the bot started talking about killing the Jews and it was, it was like, and started using the N word. It was just like, it was the worst. Um, it was really bad. I think at one point Tay was like, Hitler was right. No. <laughs> yeah, it was like, it was really like, it was a poignant moment of the internet ruins everything, right? So I talked to these other bot creators and the bots that they create are, are like not supposed to be these fancy AI bots. But um, at the same time, I mean, Rob Dubbins, uh, Olivia Taters is supposed to be like a teen girl online. And they were all talking about talking to me about how, oh, yeah, no, there's this open source list that we keep on GitHub of blacklist words and we, we just keep adding to it and, and we run the blacklist before any of the tweets come out. And this is just step zero in making sure that our bots aren't racist, right? <laughs> yeah, and the great thing about like, you know, bots is that their tweets are constantly generating, right? They, we have an infinite number of tweets. So if we're killing a lot of tweets because the, the tweets are like accidentally racist or come out as a false positive for racism, that's fine. We have more tweets. Like it's just, it's, there's, it's fine. The next few steps are things like if you're going to be, for instance, Olivia Taters and learning and, and tweeting to lots of people, one of the things is that Olivia only tweets to people that follow her so that someone has at least consented at some point, right? Whereas Tay tweeted to anyone and t- tweeted constantly. The rate of tweets was like really high. How could they s- say, we're gonna let this thing tweet 10,000 times a minute and nothing will go wrong? <laughs> like, and so for him, he, like, he has his bots tweet at a much slower rate so that he can actually catch things when things go terribly wrong. 
bot makers are constantly thinking about these kinds of things. They're running the gauntlet through their heads. Um, a lot of the time they're having the bot tweet like a bajillion times like privately before they release it out into the world so that they can test it. I mean, it's like testing algorithms. That's a thing, right? Like it's, it's a thing that people do. So there's, there's a lot of things that the makers of Tanyu could have done. Like it's, it's not inevitable that things are going to go, go to shit, like essentially. Let's, let's open it up to questions from the audience. So the, the question was um, essentially there, there's a superior court case uh, that says that Google search algorithm is speech. The question was regarding algorithms of speech. I think it's obvious that algorithms are speech. I mean, code code is speech, right? Uh, for me, I think what's really interesting is like algorithms as copyrightable expressions. Like that's that really gets me going. Like an algorithm, like a filter that like sorts things, it changes content, right? Um, and sure, like and sometimes the algorithm is producing content. Sometimes it's remixing the content, and that does seem like speech to me. It does, and I think that people are very much more focused on the other, where they're like, oh. Facebook's algorithms are censoring such and such, or Google's search algorithm is censoring, you know, the results on page three or the results on page two, because no one goes to page two and page three. An algorithm can censor things in the sense that it makes it less likely that people see it, but it's like, there was never a time where we were going to see everything. And I, th I think that it is really a wrong-headed notion of speech to say that you're entitled to be seen or rather to, to be seen on page one, right? Like maybe you are entitled to be on the internet, but you're not entitled to be on the front page of the internet. I don't think it's that much different from people sorting things. And in fact, in the case of Facebook trending, it turned out it wasn't an algorithm, it was people all along. Facebook trending is made of people. <laughs> and it's there's corporate speech at stake with respect to the algorithms. Like the, al like the corporations are practicing free speech by implementing these algorithms. And, and I think that's the, the case. I also think they're practicing free speech by implementing, for instance, their, their own policies regarding content. I think that's their speech as well, which seems counterintuitive that it's Facebook's free speech right to censor nipples, but it is. It, it's. I mean, I. I hate it, but it is their. It is their free speech right. Here we get into these thorny questions where we have these giant platforms that control the world's speech, that control our interactions with each other, and we're talking about their corporate free speech, right? And I. I don't know if that's quite, like the framing. I mean, it's like that is what it is, but it's like it's not quite the right framing for the reality we live in, where I think the platforms are frankly more powerful than governments. So the question was, given that police responses are, are highly politicized, like well, what kinds of crimes they respond to? Like, is it also the interventions taken by the social media companies, are they also politicized? In every sort of high profile instance, we haven't talked this much about online harassment ever. The way that we talk about online harassment is like completely different now. And I think that each sort of high profile instance involves a white woman. And in a lot of cases, someone who is already in the public eye. And this has to do with like, you know, access to the media, who gets interviewed, who pays attention to what's happening on the internet. But it also means that sort of the shape of those problems is very much dictated by the victims that get paid attention to. I think that there's way like disproportionate attention paid to like sexism on the internet as opposed to racism on the internet. And I think that has to do with sort of the white woman victim issue. And no, like, bad things are happening to these white women, but things were happening to non-white women before these issues hit the media. And 
like the sort of uh, overlapped racism sexism thing is doesn't really get the same kind of play isn't getting the same kind of attention the other thing is sort of this this very strong emphasis on I am getting these undesirable messages and sort of the huge sort of media frenzy around revenge porn means that the interventions have been very much focused on content and taking down content or blocking content when online harassment is in a very like there's a huge range of behaviors and content is part of it certainly but it's also just stuff like you know going to your house, finding your address, broadcasting your address, um, maybe even like mailing things to your house, sending you pizzas, like things like that. And the social media companies have not chosen to focus their attention on things like that necessarily. They, it has been very content centric. And I think that that does absolutely have to do with the media focus on certain things, certain types of harassment. The question is, uh, it's it's difficult to differentiate between spam and not spam, and also harassment and not harassment. And the question was whether the the legal system is equipped to make assessments about these algorithms. Is the legal system equipped to make assessments about algorithms about anything? No. <laughs> you said that it was more difficult to differentiate between harassment and not harassment, as opposed to spam and not spam, and. I don't think that's true, actually. I think, I mean, like, you would have to, you know, you would have to do machine learning, you would have to have a big data set, it would, it would probably, you would have to hone your definitions of harassment on different groups and subgroups of flavorings of harassment and so on and so forth, right? But I think that in the end, it would be much easier to figure out what's harassment and what's not than to figure out what's spam and what's not, because that's been an ongoing war, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, evolving and evolving and evolving and we're like we're still learning what spam is and spam never has to be readable is the thing whereas and that's why we get lit spam now is because we've advanced the lit spam is the stuff you get that looks like poetry right and it's like strangely poignant <laughs> but it's also trying to sell you viagra <laughs> so you you get so that's that's why we are where we are right it's it's bro like the meaning has broken up whereas harassment if you don't understand what it is, it's not harassing you. <laughs> so I, I do think that like there is there is a point where the arms race to identify harassment has got to end, whereas the arms race to identify spam will never end. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for coming out, you guys. Yeah.